This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 14 of Up the River by Oliver Optic Looking for the Islander The captain of the bark was a man of about fifty. He was bald, and his hair and whiskers were sprinkled with gray. I had no doubt that the violent storm had made an end of his vessel, for the wreck was exposed to the full fury of the sea, tenfold more violent than we left it than before. "'Good morning, Captain. I hope you are quite well this morning,' I began. "'I'm well enough, thank you, but I cannot forget that I've lost my ship.' he replied. You had a rough night of it on deck, and I don't think I ever knew a vessel to pitch and roll so badly as this one did. It was a terrible blow, and this is a very small vessel, though she is as strong as wood and iron could make her. If she had not been well built, the sea would have taken the house off this deck. I thought it was going to do so as it was. I think she was exceedingly well handled, or she would have gone to the bottom, continued the captain. I have no doubt there are scores of wrecks along the quays this morning, and many a good fellow may miss his mess after this. I gave him a full account of the storm and of our being carried so far out of our course by the wind and the current. I told him that we had been delayed so long by the wreck and the storm that we probably should not reach Key West till three or four in the afternoon. I suppose we shall be lucky to get there at all after all that has happened to us, replied the captain. What you say about drifting so far out of your course strikes me as being a little strange. What was the name of your vessel, captain? I have not even learned your name, I continued. I intended to point out to him the way in which the bark had been lost, but I wanted to know something more about the voyage of the unfortunate vessel. Captain Mayfield of the bark was the Olive of New York from New Orleans, with a cargo of cotton from the latter port, replied the captain. I owned a third of her myself, but she was well insured, and so is her cargo. My wife and daughter were with me and are now in the after-cabin. I think you were fortunate to escape with your lives, I added. I know we were, Captain. I don't know your name any better than you did mine, and it strikes me that you are a very young fellow to be in command of a steamer, though she is a very small one. My name is Alexander Garningham, and I am generally called Captain Malick. I have been on the water most of the time since I was ten years old, either on the sea or in the Great Lakes. I've had as rough a time on Lake Superior as we had last night, if not rougher. I told my story as briefly as I could. Your education has not been neglected, Captain Alec, continued Captain Mayfield. If you had not managed the Sylvania so well last night, most of us must have perished for I have no doubt that the olive went to pieces before midnight. She was a well-built vessel, but rather old. The gale kept forcing her up to the sharp coral rocks, and she was grinding off her timbers at a very rapid rate when we left her. If there had been any chance for her, I would not have left her. I had reduced sail at dark when it began to freshen into a gale. We had the wind on the beam, and the bark was behaving very well. 
It began to blow the heaviest about six bells, I added. We did not get the worst of it. We had the foretop mast staysail, fore and main topsails, and the spanker set. The Gulf Stream was with us, and we were making not less than ten knots an hour. I expected soon to see Carrie's fourth light. Our course was north and quarter east, and I had no doubt it was making of good. I am afraid not. Of course, I know now that I did not make it good, but I can't see any reason why not. I can, I interposed. It was for the same reason that we were drifted so far to the northward and westward. When the wind comes strong from an easterly direction, the current of the Gulf Stream is partly turned to the westward. I have read that in the Coast Pilot, but I have been through these waters so many times without noticing anything of the kind that I did not think of it last night. The first hint I had that anything was wrong was when the olives struck on the rocks. I knew from the sound of the crash that she had stove a hole in her bow. She flew back, and then the wind jammed her on again. I sent hands aloft to furl the topsails, and others to haul down the jib and take in the spinnaker. But she drove on the rocks all the same, and I knew that would be the end of her. I invited the captain to visit the cabin, for I thought he would wish to see his wife and daughter. Our passengers were all at breakfast and engaged in talking over the events of the night. Captain Mayfield was invited to join them, and I advised him to do so, while I went back to the deck and to attend to the wants of the rest of the ship's company of the olive. The sailors were all on deck, and the mate was in the pilot house with Washburn. Gopher had made provisions for feeding the addition of our passengers. I invited the two mates of the olive down to the forecabin to breakfast, while the cook and steward were supplying the sailors on the forecastle. I found that Gopher had been liberal in his supplies, both as to quantity and quality for the wrecked people. By eight o'clock breakfast had been served to all on board. I had not slept above four hours and two nights, though my short nap had refreshed me a little. Washburn and all the rest of the crew had been on duty most of the night, and they were very much fatigued. Moses Bricklin had served a double watch, and Ben Bowman had worked like a trooper most of the night. I decided, as it was pleasant and plain sailing, to send all hands to their berths and take the helm myself, with Ben at the engine, for he declared that he could stand with it only two hours' sleep a week. Captain Mayfield and his two mates soon joined me in the pilot house. I was so sleepy myself that I could not help capping and yawing. "'You've had a hard night of it, Captain Alec, while I have had a whole night below,' said Captain Mayfield. "'Myself and my mates have all seen service in a steamer, and we should be very glad to relieve you.' "'Thank you, Captain,' I acknowledged that I am rather worn out, but a little steamer like the Sylvania has her ways and is peculiar,' I replied. "'Let Beach take the wheel, and you shall see whether he can handle her,' persisted Captain Mayfield. Beach was the second mate, and I assented. I gave him the course, and he kept her steady to it. I lay down on the bench about the wheel, and before I knew it, I didn't know anything.' But I slept only a few minutes, and when I waked, I found the first mate at the wheel. He was simply trying his hand at it. A little while after the captain took his turn, 
We could see the keys, the spindles, and the buoys on the reefs, and it was hardly possible for any mishap to occur on board. I asked one of them to help me heave the log, as I had sent all my ship's company below to make up their sleep, except the second engineer. Captain Mayfield would not permit me to do anything about it. He called a couple of his seamen and went aft to do it. He soon reported twelve knots, with the remark that he did not suppose the steamer to be capable of such a high rate of speed. He then begged me to turn in. He was perfectly familiar with the coast and the soundings. He sent two of his men to the top-gallant forecastle to serve as lookouts, and declared that the mate should keep the wheel at all times. I was too sleepy to resist, and I turned in. I was soon fast asleep. The motion of the vessel was now quite steady, though she rose and fell upon the long seas. It was two o'clock in the afternoon when I woke, for the new captain would not permit me to be called. Gopher had dined all on board but the crew, who had turned in before I did. Ben Bowman had waked himself and gone to the engine room to relieve Moses at eleven. The attentive cook had a fresh dinner ready for me, and before I had finished it most of the other sleepers appeared. I went to the pilot house and looked at the log slate. It had been faithfully kept during the absence of Washburn and myself. The last entry was American Shoal with the time of passing it. Where are we now, Captain Mayfield? I asked. Do you see that beacon with a big B on the vane? He said, pointing to the beacon, which was within fifty yards of the steamer's bow. That is the eastern Sambo, about a dozen sea miles from Key West. You have been making time since I went to sleep. We have logged twelve knots every time, he replied. We shall have a headwind after we have passed the western Sambo, or soon after, and we must take in sail. I directed Washburn to call all hands and take in sail with the assistance of the sheets and halyards of the crew of the Olive. Where do you suppose the islander is about this time? I asked Washburn after he had taken in sail and squared the yards. She may be at the bottom, replied the mate. Captain Mayfield asked me what I meant and I told him about the islander. Her captain must have understood the navigation, or he would not have gone inside on such a night as last we had, added Captain Mayfield. I don't think you will see the other steamer till you get to Key West in a little more than an hour. He may have gone to the bottom in the hurricane, I suggested. He could make a harbor in several places, at Tavernier, for instance, he may even have run through some opening to the other side of one of the keys and been entirely protected from the heavy sea. He had to be pretty well acquainted in there to do this. Do you know where he shipped his crew? At Jacksonville, Florida, I replied. Then very likely he had one or more of the conks or natives who come from the Bahamas on board. They are fishermen and wreckers and know every inch of bottom all along the reefs. I think you will see the other steamer as soon as you get to Key West, for I have no doubt she has got there first, if she was going there at all. Western Sambo 3-5, continued Captain Mayfield. Make a note of it, Mr. Dana. After some further conversation with the captain, I was confident the islander could not get by Key West without being seen by Cornwood. If the steamer in which he has come to Cedar Keys had not been detained by the storm. 
Captain Mayfield did not believe the steamer with Jacksonville passengers on board had been detained, as she had an inside passage during all the worst of the hurricane. It was probable that the agent of Colonel Shepard had arrived in the forenoon, if not in the morning. Our pilot ran the Sylvania about two miles beyond the western Sambo, and then headed the vessel to the northwest. He asked me the draft of the Sylvania, and I gave it to him as nine feet which was her depth in the water when her coal bunkers were full of anthracite coal. The course was varied considerably to avoid shoal places and reefs, but Captain Mayfield gave me the sailing directions as we went along, and I compared them with those in the coast pilot. All the passengers had come on deck when it was announced that we were close in to Key West. Colonel Shepard was very anxious about the islander. The city of Key West is located on the western end of an island of the same name. Near it is Fort Taylor, a vast structure built on an artificial island and connected with Key West by a long bridge. On a hill is Whitehead Light, and on the north side of the island are several observatories. The town, consisting mostly of cottages, is near these towers. When we were off Fort Taylor, we had a view of the harbor, but the islander was not to be seen. "'There she goes!' exclaimed Washburn, pointing to the northwest. She carried no sail, but when I looked through the glass, I made out her rig, though she was four miles away. End of chapter